We're going to continue in the series we just started last week titled, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And our title for this week, week number two, is Lives Changed by Love. Lives Changed by Love. During the first several nights of uh, my, my trip to Israel, we stayed in a region that, that right now is known as the West Bank because of the, the political situation there. The, the whole region of what we think about when we read the Bible is kind of ancient Israel today contains several modern nations. So you have modern Israel, you have parts of Palestine and Jordan and Syria kind of all there. It's very different from what the national boundaries of Israel look like in the time of the Bible. And the complexity of this land kind of being shared by all these multiple nations and contested and fought over, uh, it really was felt pretty clearly in those first few days that I was there in Israel. So when we came in, we landed at Tel Aviv, and we drove up to Jerusalem, and we, we went just about six miles south of Jerusalem, but to get to the hotel where we were staying, we had to go through military checkpoints with armed soldiers. We had to go past huge concrete walls that were barriers going as far as you could see and barbed wire barricades everywhere. The political situation in this, this modern landscape kind of obscured the fact that we were really just a few miles from the capital of Israel. But if we were to go back about 2,000 years, what we would find is the very place that we drove into where the hotel was that we stayed those first few nights, there was an ancient town, a small little town that was still there, a name that all of us are familiar with as we sing about it even today. It was the town of Bethlehem. This little town of Bethlehem, which is still fairly small today, has a very, very long history. In fact, in the Bible, you find the first mention of this little town of Bethlehem in Genesis 35, 19, and then again in, in chapter 48, verse 7, and it's called Ephrathah. Uh, but it's given just a, a brief mention as the place where Rachel died after she gave birth to Benjamin. And so the first mention of this little town in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, is, is a sad mention. It's a place of mourning, a place of, of sadness for God's people. But over time and over the long history that unfolds throughout the biblical narrative and then throughout history leading up to today, that little town of Bethlehem has been the site of some other important events. The greatest of which, of course, you and I know and we're building up to celebrating at the Christmas season. But for the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing is looking at some of these stories that took place in Scripture leading up to that great celebration we have on Christmas Day. So, this place where I was sleeping just a few weeks ago has seen some imp pretty incredible things. After the burial of Rachel, the next time the town gets mentioned in the text of Scripture comes several hundred years later, after God's people have been in captivity in Egypt, after the events of the Exodus, after they've gone in and begin to conquer the promised land, what we call Israel today, after Israel became a nation in that land, and at the very end of the time when the judges were ruling over the Israelite people, we find a really incredible and beautiful story take place with this little town of Bethlehem right at the center of it. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn over to the book of Ruth, and we're going to talk about this story today. I'm going to cover all four chapters, so obviously I'm going to try to move rather quickly through it today. But I want us to see these events that take place in Bethlehem throughout the story of Ruth. The book opens with our little town mentioned right there in verse 1. If you have your Bible and are looking at it, it's Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So right up front, as we kind of get oriented into this, this story and into some of the applications I want us to draw out of it today, we need to try and feel what's being described here. Because one of the things you and I, we really don't get uh, the way ancient people got is how much of a weight famine really was. See, we live in a tremendously, tremendously blessed time to live not only when we do in modern history, but, but where we do specifically, because famine is understood better by others living today in other countries. There are places still today like Somalia or South Sudan or Nigeria, Ethiopia, Madagascar, all those countries have had severe famine just within the last 20 years, and people have been devastated by that. But you and I living right here where we do, we are so so blessed. I mean, tonight when we come and we eat our, our banquet dinner here, I guarantee there'll be food left over and lots of it. It will be delicious. We'll have our fill and there'll be more because you and I, we don't really have to worry so much about famine or about not having something to eat the way others do in certain places around the world today, but especially the way people did in ancient times, like in ancient Israel. When a famine would come in the ancient world. Sometimes it came because of drought. That's especially an issue in the land of Israel. We'll talk about that more some other time. Sometimes it's because a disaster would come and would destroy an entire crop. Sometimes it was because of war or pillaging that famine would be brought about the land. And God's people also knew that he had made very, very clear in the law that he had given and the words he had spoken to them that sometimes God himself, Yahweh himself, would send famine upon his people as judgment, as a curse, as a result of their disobedience to following him and his word. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 45 to 48 make it very clear. God says, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he has commanded you. These shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. Because you did not serve Yahweh your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom Yahweh will send against you. Notice this, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness, and lacking everything. He says, in famine, this famine, I will send upon you. I will put it on you as a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. So God's people understood if we disobey, if we do not do what God says, if we don't listen to him, if we don't follow him, if we don't obey him, the result of that, God says, is that he will send judgments upon us, including, at times, famine, so that we would see the seriousness of our sin, the seriousness of our rebellion, and we would repent and turn back to him. Now, this period of history that we're in, where the story of Ruth unfolds is, as it said there, in the time of the judges. And if you've read through the book of Judges, you know one of the repeated phrases that tell us what the culture was like, what the people were like in this time, was that everyone did what was right in his own eyes, right? The contrast there is they weren't looking to God. They weren't seeing things the way God had said. They weren't obeying him. They weren't following him. They weren't listening to his word. They simply said, I want to do this. This seems good to me. I like that. And that's what they did. It was an awful time of rebellion and sin all across the people of Israel. And it's at the very end of that period when this famine comes. And so I believe this famine that's mentioned here 
is a direct result of the sinfulness of God's people, their disobedience to him and his word that he had said would come. And it was a call from God to come back to him, to repent and to turn to him and to trust him and rely on him. So I want us to understand this morning, when a famine strikes in the modern world, but especially in the ancient world, it's incredibly devastating. It makes people very desperate. And that's what was happening at Bethlehem in this time, in those first few verses of the story of Ruth. The story focuses in on one man there. His name is Elimelech. And he becomes so desperate to find food and provide for his family that he does something almost unthinkable and something very unfaithful to God in his commands. He leaves the town of Bethlehem. He leaves the region of Judah. Even goes outside of the nation of Israel and travels southeast beyond the Dead Sea over to the country of Moab and the land of the Moabites. I want us to understand why this is such an issue. Uh, but, but first, when in the book of Deuteronomy, God says, I will send these things upon you. He also makes very clear in the same book that when judgment comes, when things like famine, when things like war, when enemies come in and those are sent by me, they're sent so that you would repent, so that you would turn, so that you would find my mercy, my forgiveness, my restoration. You would come to me. So God tells the people, these things will happen when you disobey me. These curses will come, but to get the blessings back, you need to turn to me and obey me and follow my ways. So he, he makes it very clear what they ought to do. And that means what Elimelech should have done in these first few verses is when famine struck the, sound, the town of Bethlehem, he should have repented of his sins. He should have gone to his neighbors and his friends and his family and those in his community and said, we need to repent before the Lord and seek him and his forgiveness and his mercy and rely on him. But instead, what Elimelech did was he said, now I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to run to a different place and I'm going to try to find my own solution. And Moab, the place that he goes to, is one of the last places an Israelite who is faithful to God and his commands should have gone for relief. Very briefly, and without all the details, you can go read the story if you want to on your own. In Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 to 38, we find the origins of the Moabite people and the Ammonite people told to us. It takes place in the biblical narrative right after the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God destroys those cities because of their great evil and perversion. But what we find just verses after God's act there is that the daughters of Lot act incestuously after getting their father so drunk that he has no idea what's going on. And it is a direct result of those acts that the nations of Moab and Ammon are birthed. Their whole people started out of terribly, terribly sinful acts. And God's people knew that. And God's people even knew that the rank sinfulness that started those two nations was so detested by God that God had told them, you must not have peace, you must not make treaties, you must not go and seek the good of the Moabite people in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 6. And yet... We have to understand what's happening here. The desperation of famine in Bethlehem leads this man to say, I'm going to ignore God's word. I'm going to ignore God's commands. I'm not going to do what God has said to do in situations like this. And instead, I will go to this place where God has said we should not go. I will live among and I will be part of these people God said we should have nothing to do with. So let's think about ourselves 
for just a moment. I know we're in verse one and I gotta cover four chapters, but let's think about ourselves for just a moment. The response here by Elimelech is in a very difficult and desperate time. And it reveals his heart. And what it reveals is a heart that does not trust God, a heart that does not want to obey God, a heart that does not want to do what God has said. And again, I don't want to downplay the severity of the situation because it really is desperate. Famine is a very real, serious thing. It was to them just as much as it would be to you and I. I've never had to be in that situation, praise God. But we face difficult situations in our lives, and you face difficult situations in your life too, right? Things that are real, things that feel heavy, things that are things that can make us desperate. And the question we need to ask ourselves in light of what Elimelech does in just verse 1 of our story is the same question Elimelech asked himself. Where should we go and what should we do when we face difficult and desperate times? And I want, as we think of that question, for you to be honest with yourself. When, when things are bad, you must ask yourself, do you run towards God or do you run away from God? What, what, what is the natural pull of your heart? What is the, the thing, if you were to look back and look at the patterns of your life, what is it that you do when things get difficult, when you get desperate? Do you try to figure it out on your own? Do you, do you come up with your own solutions? Do you look to, to certain people in your life who you think will have the answers you need? Do you, do you watch a bunch of YouTube videos and try to figure it out, get a self-help book? Or do you stop and do you pray? Do you consider your life and the commands of God? Do you turn to him or do you turn from him. And as you think of this question today, now, and, and as we come back in the response time to this same thought, I want you to be honest with yourself because, God, one, God already knows the answer, right? He knows what you're doing. He's not fooled. You're like, you know, I think I probably run from God, but I'm going to convince myself it's not that. No, no, I'm really, really good. God knows the answer already. You need to be honest with yourself in order to really respond rightly to him today. How we react in difficult moments. I want us to get this. How we react in difficult moments, in desperate times, it reveals where our hearts really are. It's easy to pretend, and it's much simpler to do the right thing when we're successful, when things are going well. But when things get difficult, and when things are desperate, and when real hardships and desperate moments arrive, our hearts are truly revealed. In the next few verses of the story, this life of Abimelech ends very quickly. And we're not given any sense of if he ever repented of this. Leaving, going to Moab was a sinful response. He did not want to obey God. He did not want to rely upon God. He did not want to repent as he was supposed to. He went instead and tried to find his own solution. And what we learn in the next few verses is, very shortly after these acts, he dies there in Moab. And then the story jumps ahead about 10 years, and we learn that the two sons he had taken with him had grown up. They had taken Moabite women as their wives, something they should not have done, and they die early deaths there in Moab as well. And so the story focuses in really on these three widowed women who are left all alone in Moab and now facing desperate times again. But in verses 6 and 7, here's what we read. So then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food in the land of Israel. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Now, as they begin to head out, and she's going to go back to the land that she should have never left from, it occurs to Naomi 
the situation I'm returning to isn't going to just fix everything. In fact, there's going to be some real challenges when I get back to Israel. Not just for me, but for these two daughters-in-law, who I think Naomi really genuinely loves. She knows that they're not going to find comfort, and they're not going to find these great new lives when they roll into Bethlehem. They're going to be outsiders in that country. Likely, they're going to be shunned. Certainly, as widows, they're going to have very difficult lives. They're going to live in poverty and just kind of scrape by, and they won't have much hope for good, bright futures. And so Naomi realizes all of this, and she decides to tell the girls, listen, the best chance for your lives is this. Just go back home to your parents' house, stay in this culture, try to find a new husband here in this country that you have grown up in. And, and one of the girls, Orpah, she, she cries, and she's wanting to go with her. I think she genuinely loves Naomi, wants to follow her, but, but Naomi insists, no, this is the best way, and, and Orpah's convinced, you know, this probably is my only hope for a good life. And so she tearfully gives in to the insistence of Naomi and she heads back to her parents' home. But the other girl, Ruth, as you guess, reacts differently. We're told that while Orpah began the journey away from Naomi, back towards Moab and her family home, in verse 19 we read that Ruth clung to Naomi. And Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, and this is the key text from the whole book, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May Yahweh do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And so when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more. And the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. So Ruth, her her response, even though it makes great sense, even though Naomi's right, if you want to follow the most natural course, the best path that we can foresee, it's stay here in Moab. Ruth says, no, I want to instead leave behind my country, leave behind my family, leave behind the religion I grew up in, and I have kind of commit myself fully to being one of your people, Naomi. I'm going to to be part of your house. I'm going to work for your well-being. And most importantly, did you see, Ruth said, Naomi, your God will be my God. I won't trust the Moabite gods. I will rely on your God, Yahweh himself. And so verse 19 says, when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. And the women of the town said, is this Naomi? Remember, she's been gone at least 10 years, maybe a little more. And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, the translation of that word there in in verses 6, 7, and 22 in the ESV here and in most other English translations is that they returned, right? But the Hebrew word there is the word that means repent, And I think that's actually what Naomi and Ruth are doing here. I think they were repenting and turning towards Yahweh, towards the one true God, as they took this step of faith and came back to the promised land, to this little town of Bethlehem. But despite turning back towards God there, Naomi's still carrying in herself bitterness and brokenness from that last decade of difficulties that she's lived through. 
And again, let, let's just think about ourselves for a moment. How many of us could relate to that? How many of us have faced difficulties, we faced challenges, we faced hardships and desperate things in our lives, and, and while we still want to follow God and we still want to do the right thing, we don't want to go live in sin and just run out and do our own thing, but, but even despite that desire to follow after God, if we're honest, there's, there's a root somewhere in our hearts of bitterness, brokenness. I and mean, for some of us, I, I think we need to take that question really seriously and do some, some digging. Because if we are honest and we dig and search our hearts, I think we'll find how much we relate to Naomi in this. Maybe it's right there. Maybe you know, yeah, I'm really bitter about the things I've had to go through. I really question if God's love is true, if God loves me because of what I've had to endure. I don't want to throw it all in, but I just, I just don't know if I can be close to a God who would lead me through things like that. A lot of us, I think, are like Naomi when we go through difficult and desperate moments. If we're not careful, that little root of bitterness will grow and develop into something that will separate us fully from God. But coming back to the story of Ruth here, chapter 2 begins by introducing another character for us, and he's a man who's not at all like Naomi's husband Elimelech was. This man, you know his name, is Boaz. And it seems like he was a very faithful man. He didn't flee and seek salvation in another country when the famine had come. He stayed there in Bethlehem, the place where God had put him. God had placed his family, and he endured through those difficulties, relying on the faithfulness and mercy of God. And Boaz is, is a landowner there, and he has these fields that are just outside of Bethlehem, where barley was beginning to be harvested, as the text said, right when Ruth and Naomi arrived back in town. Now, there in Israel, particularly around the Bethlehem area, there is a few things geographically that, that you should know. This area is, is filled with hills, and they're rocky hills that kind of rise rather sharply up. And so along the hillside, there's little bits of, of bushes and grass that will grow and things like that. And so shepherds will take their sheep out on those hills, and they can graze them up on these hills, but it's down in the valleys where the, the land is better and fields can be harvested. Now, you're not going to run your, your animals through the fields because you need the crops from the fields to survive, right? So shepherds are kind of up on the hillsides, and in the valleys are fields that can harvest crops. So according to tradition, the fields of Boaz were, were just in this little valley area to the east of Bethlehem. And there's, there's really two candidate sites, one a little more north and one just a little more south on this east stretch, kind of over one side of the hill or over the back side of the hill. And I stood on that hill just a few weeks ago. I have a, a photo of me standing there over this little valley. So you can kind of see a hill there behind me, like on the far side, and I'm up on a hill. And down in the valley there, there's a building that's there because modern stuff has been built down there at the edge of the hill. And then you can kind of see this line running out from it. That's a field. If you go to the second photo, you can see a little better there. So there you can see trees. And on both sides of that is this strip of land that's used as a field to this very day to grow row crops. And of course, I was there in November, and so nothing's coming up out of the ground. Everything looks dead. But you can kind of see behind it, you see all the rockiness right there behind it. That's basically all the way up the hill. So you've got little bits of area where you can, you can graze your, your, your lambs and your sheep and your goats up the hill, but you can't grow anything up there. You've got to grow things in that valley. And again, tradition says this is one of two places. Boaz's field was either that field right there or the one that was just on the other side of the hill behind me. So as widows, Ruth and Naomi 
They don't have any means of providing for themselves. And apart from family stepping in and just giving them what they need and supporting them, the only other way they are going to be able to get the food they need to survive is through practicing what is called gleaning. Now, in the law that was given to Israel, God told the farmers, when you have a field like this and you plant your crops and on those things grow, when you go to harvest, you must not harvest along the edges and the corners of your property. You leave those things there, and you leave behind anything that falls. So as you are cutting down your barley or your wheat, and you're bundling that up, if some of it falls out onto the ground, you don't bend down and pick it up and put it back in the bundle. You just tighten the bundle that you have there, and you leave that on the ground so that the poor, so that the widow, so that the sojourners can come along behind you and collect those things that have fallen or those things along the edges and have that as the food that they need to survive. So Jason and, and Joel, I don't think your combines have uh, settings for that, right? You know, you, you, you get all the way to that edge. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. But this practice was how farmers in Israel, if they were faithful to God, if they're faithful to law, would have conducted their operations. And Boaz is a man who's faithful. So as he is having his fields harvested, as the workers go through, he is leaving behind these little pieces, the edges, the corners, and whatever falls on the ground, so that the poor, the widows, the sojourners can come and get the food that they need to survive. And that's where Ruth goes, out into this field right there, and she's walking along, gleaning from Boaz's fields, when by God's providence, Boaz comes out to check upon his workers for the day. And he sees this woman in the fields who he does not recognize. Remember, she's a foreigner. She's a Moabite in a very, very small town. All of you live in a very, very small town. You know everybody, and when someone who you don't know is out doing something, you're like, hey, who is that, right? And you're asking people, who, who, who's that? What's the story? And it's what Boaz does. He asks his workers, who is this young woman there? And they tell her story. This is Ruth. She came with Naomi from the land of Moab. She made this pledge to remain with her, and she journeyed here from, and on and on. They tell her all the details about her, and Boaz becomes impressed. This young woman could have stayed in the land of Moab. Naomi could have returned alone. But here she is pledging herself to her mother-in-law. Here she is not just, not just saying, well, I'll come and hang out and see how things go, but, but saying she will live and die with her mother-in-law and she will rely upon her mother-in-law's God, our God, the God of Israel, to provide for her. And so Boaz decides to be extra kind to her. He sends for her and invites her to eat with him and then says, stay in my fields as we harvest the barley and then move into the, to the wheat harvest. Don't, don't go into any other field. Don't work any other land. You'll be provided for here. Follow my workers. In fact, they'll give you extra and provides more for her. And so for months upon end, she can stay in this one place where she is safe, where she is provided for, where he says she will be protected, gives orders to his workers for that. And the provision that Ruth needs and her mother-in-law needs comes all throughout the barley and the wheat harvests, according to verse 23. Now, one of the things I love about the story of, of Ruth, kind of stepping back again, is the way God's at work in this story is the way that God's at work in most of our lives most of the time. See, we, we love all the stories in the Bible, and there's so many great ones about how God shows up and does some great and awesome things, right? Like God sends a prophet to, to speak through him, or God does a miracle or a mighty, amazing sign and wonder, right? Fire comes from heaven, or, rock fl or water flows up out of a rock in the middle of a desert, right? God does these incredible supernatural things, and we're like, wow, I love that. I love to read those stories. But what you and I need to never forget when we're reading those stories is the reality is most of God's people 
even in biblical times, but certainly all throughout the rest of history, and certainly true of us today, we don't see God work in those amazing signs and wonder ways firsthand in our lives, right? Like how many of you have been praying, Lord, we need rain, and it just starts raining? I mean, if that's happened once or twice, you're like, that's incredible, right? And you're kind of satisfied for your life. Because <laughs> most of the time you're like, Lord, send the rain or stop the rain. And that's not what happens. Or how many times have you asked God for a sign? You know, Lord, I want to know how, what to do here. Show me a sign. And he's like, okay, fire from heaven. Here's what you do. Or booming voice. Like, we don't get that experience often, do we? Most of the time, God is working kind of behind the scenes. The, the theological term we use is providence, his providential hand. It's guiding things. He's doing things. He's working in ways that aren't big and obvious and supernatural. They're, they're subtle. He's still at work. We just don't tend to see it as clearly in the moment. And what I love about the story of Ruth is God's at work all throughout these two chapters, but not in the big supernatural ways of the other stories we can think of. Right? No prophets show up in the whole story. When Ruth and Naomi get back and they need food, God doesn't send manna from heaven or ravens to bring bread like he will do for Elisha. Right? God instead is working through an ordinary means, using ordinary people, using the law that he had given and people being faithful to that to provide for Naomi and Ruth and, as the story continues to unfold, to create an amazing result that no one could foresee on their own. This is the application for us to glean from, from this part of the book, I think. You and I need to learn to look for God's providence in our lives. How his hand is moving, how he's working in subtle, behind-the-scenes way, is active, not just in big miracles and signs and wonders, but guiding and working in the ordinary moments and the small things. Because that's what the story of Ruth is all about, how God has worked in these ways in her story. The story gets even better as you move farther into it, and... I'm running out of time. So in chapter 3, let me summarize. <laughs> Naomi gives Ruth instructions about how to go about making a request. And they seem very foreign to us because they are very foreign to us. Drawing on the law and the, civil, um, the, the, the design of the civil society that God had given the people of Israel, Ruth goes and does what is, what is chaste and honorable. Some people you read, if you read more liberal commentaries or, or somebody just talking about it online, they may say that what happened there was inappropriate or immoral. It wasn't. Ruth goes and makes a request of Boaz for him to become her protector, her provider, as the kinsman redeemer. Again, a concept completely foreign to our society and the way our situation works. But in the law, there was clear responsibilities given, and Naomi instructs Ruth how to go make this request, and Boaz responds, willingly. He will step up and act in this way. And so in chapter 4, he says, yes, I'm willing to do it, but there's one other who, by the law, should do this first. And so he is a closer kinsman to your family. He should redeem you. He should provide for you. He should take care of you. And so he goes, and he explains the situation, and that guy says, I don't want to do that. This will cost me. This will create responsibilities that I don't want to bear. It would require me to, to marry Ruth and for, take care of her. I don't want to do that. And so he says, I'm out. And Boaz says, okay, then I'm in. I will follow God's word. I will do what God has asked me to do. I will provide for her. I will care for her. I will take care of all of the things that she needs. And so this amazing turn of events happens through chapters 3 and 4. And Naomi and Ruth, who came back to Bethlehem, bitter and broken and empty, without much prospect for the future, get their lives turned upside down. 
In chapter 4, verse 13, we read, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. So she goes from a widow without hope to being this wife who's beloved and sought after and cherished. And the story of Ruth is a story of a life changed entirely by love. And the same is true for Naomi. She left Bethlehem and her husband didn't want to rely upon God, didn't want, to, re- didn't want to, to repent and seek God. And so she goes off to this other country and eventually returns, but she's bitter and she's broken and she feels the weight of a life lived full of sin with all these mistakes and all these things she wished she could do differently. She can't see a bright future for herself or for Ruth. But in chapter four, the story ends for her with love changing everything for her too. She retakes her original name because she's not bitter anymore. And God gives to her not just the security of provision for herself, but look at verses 13 and 14. Yahweh gave Ruth conception, and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, O blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And so Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And verse 17 tells us they named him Obed. So for Naomi, too, this life is radically changed. From this widow, a woman whose sons had died, whose lineage would end at her own death, has her story totally redeemed. Her life turned upside down and changed. And by the end of the book, she's celebrating the birth of a grandson and the love of this faithful daughter-in-law to her. And while verse 17's the very last mention of Ruth and Naomi in the book, the author of the book is writing later, looking back, I think amazed, marveling at the providential hand of God that may not have been seen by those in the middle of the story. But he sees clearly looking back what God has done because he tells us that in verse 17, they named the child Obed and he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, King David. The mysterious hand of God, the providential work of God, was not just about saving this one story of Ruth or redeeming the life of Naomi. It was about bringing them into this bigger, grander, more amazing story that he was unfolding in the history of the world. And this little town of Bethlehem gets to be witness to not only this redemption, this story of love for these two ladies, but eventually is the place where the great Redeemer himself comes. You know, Ruth's name's only mentioned once in the entire New Testament. Her story is so amazing. It's beloved by people who study the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, she gets one mention because that one mention is all that you really need to understand about the greater context of God's providential work in her life. Matthew 1.5 tells us, Ruth was the mother of Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who fathered King David. And Matthew goes on to then list the generations from King David to the birth of the true king, Jesus Christ himself. So as we conclude this morning, here's, here's the lessons I want us to, to think about. Here's the things I want to draw us towards this week as we reflect on this story and as we respond to the word of God. I want us to examine our own heart and consider where is it that you and I, where do we go when things get difficult and desperate? Because the temptation when we are under pressure is to act poorly, Right? is to do things that, you know, we, we would tell ourselves if things weren't this desperate, weren't this bad, we wouldn't do them. And what we're doing is we're saying when things are desperate, things are bad, we might make bad choices. That's not, that's not who we are, right? That's what we want to always caveat it with. I was just desperate. That's not who I am. That's not really where my heart is. Here's what the Bible would tell you. That is what is in your heart. 
desperation and difficulties don't cause you to go against the deepest, truest part of who you are. They reveal it. Our hearts are wicked and deceitful and unfaithful and untrusting, and difficulty exposes that in us. So if, if we're honest today, and we're reflecting on that, and we say, yeah, when things are really, really bad, I do things I know I should not do, then today what we need to see is a Savior and a Redeemer who can deliver us. Likewise, if you were to examine your heart today and say, like I saw in Naomi, this root of bitterness grew up, that it became her whole identity, that's, that's in me too. I faced some difficulties, I faced some, some disappointments, some desperate situations, and even though I've come through them, you know, I, I'm harboring some bitterness about that. I'm questioning God's love, God's goodness. Maybe, maybe I'm cold towards him because of those things. If that's you, then what you need to see today is a savior and a redeemer who is truly fully good and merciful and kind and loving, and you need him to heal your heart. And I think many of us in this room because it's true of of me just as much, is we can be so blind sometimes to how God is at work in our lives, in the moments that we are in, that sometimes his providence seems all but invisible to us. And sometimes that can lead to questioning. If we're honest, we can wonder, is God really aware of us? I mean, if he really cares about us, why this? I mean, does my life really matter to him? Does my life really have any significance in this big world? If that's you today, then, then what I hope we'll find is as your eyes are opened, you'll see this sovereign one who's working out a much bigger, much grander story than you and I could possibly see or feel in the moment. But for all of us today, no matter where we are, no matter what we're struggling with, no matter what we see in our own hearts as we're honest, our needs will bring us to Jesus. Because he is the true savior. He is the real redeemer. He is the one who this story is ultimately and truly all about. And he is the one who can heal, who can restore, who can deliver, who can redeem, who can open your eyes and your hearts today. Jesus is the one whose love can change our lives and our stories. Even today, though we're not sitting in the little town of Bethlehem, we're in the little town of Nelsonville. The love of Jesus is our focus for this week in the week in this season of Advent. And the love that we read about in the opening scripture this morning that Malia talked about in the devotion this morning is what resulted in Jesus entering this broken, sinful world. And he came to, to redeem, to rescue, to change you and I with his perfect love. To die in the place of all who would trust in him so that we would have salvation, we would have lives changed by love today too. So we'll take a few moments to respond. My prayer is that you'd be open and honest with yourself and that Jesus would move in his perfect love to meet you and minister to you as only he can. Worship team, if you'll come. As always, if you want to come and pray in these altars, you're welcome to do so. I'd love to pray with you for any needs you may have. But let's just take these next few moments in this short song of response and open our hearts to receive the love, the changing, powerful love that comes through Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us as we turn to response. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible story that we, we had to rush so much through with so many incredible things that you have done and did there in that town of Bethlehem through the lives of Ruth and Naomi. And, and Lord, I just pray that you would help us in this moment to be honest with ourselves. These lessons that we have, have gleaned from the text, Lord, would, would start to kind of press in and work through our minds. And Lord, in these moments right now, we would begin to respond in a way that would allow your love and your changing power to work in us in the ways that you know 
we need. So help us to respond to you in this time, I ask in your name. Amen.